Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, thanks, Christops, for the opportunity to promote my show on the eastern border. Hello, my name is Jack, and I am the host of the Secret Police podcast. Do you have a problem with authority? Because I do. And I'm on a mission to help us all build a healthy skepticism towards those in power. I do this by exploring how dictators enforce their rule. On Secret Police, we explore the history and methods of the world's most brutal secret police forces. Currently, we are chronicling Russia's long relationship with secret police forces from Ivan the Terrible's Oprichniki, the Soviet secret police, and up to the modern-day FSB, as well as all the turbulence inherent in Russia's history. If you're into history, dark humor, and hearing about the worst of what the human race has to offer, this is the show for you. We've got a lot planned for this podcast. After we leave Russia... We'll be visiting all kinds of nice men. The Haitian Tantan Makut, the Iranian Savak, Mussolini's Ovra, even fictional political police like the Thought Police from Orwell's 1984, and so much more. Humanity's propensity towards violence and authoritarianism certainly provides a lot of content for us to explore. Listen to episodes of Secret Police on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. Follow Secret Police on Twitter at hush underscore popo and Instagram at Secret Police Podcast. Leave the show a rating, review, like, and subscribe. Agents dismissed.
Hello, everybody. I am Anthony Bardway from the Ukraine Without Hype podcast, and I'm here with Chris Taps Andresens from the Eastern Border podcast. This is going to be a collab uh, episode. It will be on both of our feeds, so subscribe to both, listen twice, increase that listener count. Uh, so because of that, we'll just uh, explain what we're sitting down for. Both of us just went down to Mikolaev together and went to the front lines for a stint. Saw what we saw. There was some bombings overnight on several occasions. So we're just going to have a sit down, debrief everything that we saw, experience, etc. So Chris Epps. Yeah. Well, um, greetings, comrades. We're home now. We're safe. That's the most important part. But um, I have to say that during the fourth night, I had already gotten used to the fact that I can't go to sleep just yet. The Russian bombings will happen at 1 a.m. or so. And after that, you can go to sleep. Yeah, it was at 2 a.m. That, that last night, though, threw us off. Yeah, they, they kicked us. And that was the closest one. Uh, talking about the bombings, uh, they were really close. They weren't just some booms far away. We heard plenty of those, but they didn't bother us that much. On, I think it was the second night, they struck really close. The closest one was about 200 meters, a couple of blocks away. Yeah, yeah. And then, was, then there was about one bit further, and we went down there, and one of them was... Um, in a park, which cut off our water supply from our hotel for a bit. And the other one was just um, a city street, kind of a central marketplace street, just blown to pieces with um, either either S300 or um, Typhoon S, one of those things. I, I've read both reports. Yeah. Had you seen, had you seen exploded uh, stuff before such level? Well, yeah, I was, I was in Ukraine throughout the entire war, so I have been to uh, liberated territory before, especially around the the Kiev region. Right after the siege of Kiev ended, about a couple days later, I kind of went into the territories, delivered some aid, did some reporting. But I'd say that the siege around Kiev, well, at least the parts I went to, not into Bucha. You, you've been to Bucha before, yeah? Yes, in Irpin as well. Yeah, Bucha, Irpin. I then went to like the eastern parts, like the more rural areas. So around Kiev, I definitely saw that kind of thing before, but I had not been, well, I say hadn't been to the front line, but I was in Kiev during the siege. I just, it just felt different. Well, yeah, we went to the, we went to the very front lines as well. Well, as close as you can possibly get. We, we had a nice ride on a tank, which was the most interesting part of the whole experience. Thanks to our fixer, Nikolai, that, that arranged a lot of things for us. Thanks to Nikolai for arranging a lot of things for us. But riding the tank, that just went off to a battle mission, no less. That was an um, interesting part. Uh, I, was, I was sitting in a less comfortable position, but Anthony here, he was just sitting right on top of the reactive armor and just taking pictures of everything. Well, yeah, I was on the front. I had plenty of space. I had some good footholds. It was, it was, a, it was a comfy ride for me. It didn't look like it was for anyone else, though. Yeah, because those... Uh, those shafts that you enter the tank in, they have very sharp metal edges around them, and they had to sit on them. Uh, was not was not a pleasant experience. But in general, I don't know, this was, this was an interesting conversation with the soldiers as well there. I was surprised about how, how happy they seemed. Maybe it was because we gave them some coffee. We gave some coffee to artillery crews. Mm-hmm. They, they had a really bad one. But previously, I had only seen the Ukrainian military side that, that's very strict, closed, and very official. And here, you know, on the ground, the situation is, is different. The soldiers are very talkative and open. We spoke about this a few days ago. The journalists, they're not allowed to go some places, but 
It's the fixer's problem and the journalist's problem. The, the soldiers, if you ask them, if you ask them nicely, they'll take you anywhere without any questions. Yeah, it's just a matter of you don't want them to get in trouble. You don't want yourself to get in trouble. So it's incumbent on you to turn down the invitations for, for some things, because there is a still standing order that embedding directly on the front lines, like on the line of contact is still a no, no, but. I don't want to encourage people to come to Ukraine and try to to wrangle that for themselves because it's um, a pretty serious legal situation, but they're very friendly people. Oh, and anyone, please don't make a war tourism a thing because it shouldn't be. It's actually pretty scary when explosions happen nearby you. We can talk about this now because we're in safety in Kiev. Hearing explosions and hearing your whole building shake and, uh, dare I say, our, our hotel had missing first floor windows completely because of some previous explosion. So it's it's not a fun experience. You don't don't really do that for um, fun. But about exploded windows, like I said, we, we lacked water in one of the days in our hotel, but they fixed up everything so fast. We also interviewed uh, the rescue organizers, press secretary, I think that, that she was. But yeah, they the have, press secretary. They have everything organized so well. Uh, you said it's a more of a Ukrainian thing about how they like fix everything up super quickly. Yeah, on that, uh, so what we saw was essentially in the wake of a missile attack, there was basically crews of people with their specific jobs. Some of them were professionals, some of them were just volunteers, some were sweeping up the streets, picking up debris, cutting wood to put over the windows, the the plywood, and was cleaned up really quickly. Like, we went back by that same site the next day, and everything was... I mean, the buildings were still, you know, pretty, pretty roughed up, but the area around it was, was cleaned up and, and like safe, safe to go through. Yeah. And when we went to other, other places around the local guides uh, told us that, well, just after a missile strike or something, the locals probably wouldn't even wait for the salvage teams, kind of rescue teams to come up and try to clean this. They would just instantly start picking everything up themselves. Yeah, I, from from a cultural standpoint, I think this is something that outsiders uh, may not understand as well. But Ukrainian culture is very horizontal. So basically, if you think about it, throughout most of Ukrainian history, they've always been controlled by some outside force, one empire or another. Like the central authorities have always been somewhat hostile to Ukrainians. In order to make up for that, there's very strong horizontal community bonds of people getting together and getting the thing done that needs to be done. This has been described in various Ukrainian political philosophies as well. According to Ukrainian political philosopher Prikhorius Skovoroda, the fundamental unit of Ukrainian society is the kromada, uh, the community that everything is built around. Sometimes there'll be like an elected leader, but the elected leader is always meant to be accountable to the community itself. So this idea of Ukrainians getting together and fixing this problem through community means is very, very Ukrainian. It's very, very rooted in uh, history here as well. And you can also see that in, in what their military is doing. The, the guys on the ground have a lot of initiative. I think this horizontal culture might be one of the reasons why they have shifted away from the Soviet strategic command, which is super centralized and super from the top with zero initiative to the troops, which is why I think they were able to adapt to NATO strategies that are more decentralized and more objectives-based. They take a lot of initiative of themselves on the ground as well. That could also play a role. What Ukrainians point out as one of the fundamental differences 
between Ukrainian culture and Russian culture is that within Russia, everything is vertical. Every everything's very top down. There's the boss and then the boss has a boss and eventually everyone is subservient to the czar. And there's a certain level of disconnect. Uh, you can feel like you are not responsible for larger community in that way because it's all uh, tiered and hierarchical and all that. So that's that's one explanation that Ukrainians especially will give for the difference between their culture and that of the invading one. This is not stay only on the local Ukrainian people. We managed to speak with a rabbi. Right. Yes, he was the rabbi of Mikhailov. Yeah, and we had a nice conversation. This was my first time ever when I was speaking with a rabbi. I did some translation work. Even though the rabbi knew some English, I have to give him credit for that. But uh, I did some translation work there. And turns out the Jewish community in Mikhailov still is very active. And what really surprised me the most is that they also reach out and they help people. And the schools are still in working order. You know, the fact that they're, they're still running these educational programs and everything. Yeah, they they said they're doing it through online classes, which is partially a holdover from COVID. So during COVID, the Chabad school system, a lot of them had moved to online courses. So they're ready for this sort of thing. But as the kids went off to Europe, to Israel, America, wherever uh, refugees may go to, they still have access to online learning with people from their community, which I thought was very good to hear. Because when you're a refugee, it's like, you're alone. You don't know everybody. You don't. A lot of times you may not know the language of the people around you. It's very isolating. So to have that connection through uh, online classes, I thought was was uh, very nice to hear. Yeah. And in, in connection with this, one of the more confusing moments of our trip was the hotel that we were staying in. I had booked it via booking.com, you know, found it because the fixers told me to. And it was called Pilgrim. I just thought it would be just a name. No, it isn't. It isn't just a name. Uh, that's one of those hotels where they have Gideon Bibles on the restaurant where they serve you the breakfast. The whole cafe thing was across the street. I wouldn't recommend the breakfast though themselves. They were the bare minimum of having a breakfast. But the most interesting part is when we asked about uh, tourists, how many tourists come here. Well, uh, Anthony asked the rabbi, because Mikolaev is the birthplace of an important Jewish person. The rabbi, most recent head of the... Chabad movement, if you're familiar, that they do a lot of outreach to Jews, not non-Jews. Um, they're not big on converting people. But if you're a, a less uh, strictly practicing Jew, Chabad are the people that want you to become more observant. Mikolaev was the birthplace of Rabbi uh, Schneerson, was his name. Yeah, and uh, currently they've renamed the street on which the synagogue that we went to was, was also there. And also it's the birthplace of Trotsky. So if you think about it, there is not much tourism going on in Nikolaev in general. At least they said it was an industrial city. So if you go to Odessa, then maybe you can pop in, but it's not a huge tourist central, except if you're a Trotsky fan, I suppose, or a Jewish person. And neither of those groups, I think, would be much prone to conversion by, by Gideon Bibles in the restaurant. Well, I mean, I we didn't look into it too heavily. There might be a community there that just ran a hotel as a way to make money. That's what my guess is. I don't, I don't know. It was a good hotel. I'm not going to put them down for having Bibles. That's fine. There's a nice old building. Yes, the prices were reasonable. So, yeah, I'd recommend them. Staying there pretty nice. Just maybe you should go eat breakfast somewhere else. <laughs> that, that's, that's a thing. When we ordered uh, two eggs and, and salad, it was literally just two eggs on the plate. That's it. Like, it's fine. It's a it's a light breakfast. A light breakfast is fine for me. 
but <laughs> we should probably stop dwelling on the breakfast. <laughs> well, the option. breakfast option, yeah, yeah. But yeah, we also spoke with um, with the governor with with Kim, and we met the Australian journalist there, who somehow we managed to meet also in in the city there. The Australian ladies, for you uh, Aussie listeners. They're the same ones as you told me that they've been here all along. Yeah, um, I had seen them once before. I never had a conversation with them, but they were at the bombing of a rail yard repair factory, like where they fixed up cars to transport grain mainly was the issue. And yeah, when that repair station was bombed in Kiev a couple months back, they were there. So I assume that they've been here the whole time. And then we uh, also met two Americans. One of them was our press officer on the front lines, and the other was was Craig. If you listen to the Eastern Border mm-hmm. recent episode, you've, you've heard about Craig. The officer was quite standoffish, though, for a press officer. He was a bit quiet. I think he was just there for his own purposes. I don't think he was there to like help us out. I think he was there to do press things for his own unit or whatever. I think that was what the story was. But I, I guess, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's also war. You can't blame people who are mm-hmm. in a war for being you know, standoffish a bit. But the people around that place, what, what really struck me as the most stunning image is the fact that we rode this tank, we were sitting on top of it, and then we drove through this field, and there's a lot of fields around these parts, and it, it makes you, in a way, feel like a medieval knight when you're on a tank, and then everyone on the ground who just sees you just greets you all the time, and there are also farmers around still doing their work. We literally drove through mm-hmm. a field. There were cattle and sheep and goats and people just driving their tractor from a field where we just saw a rocket just leaving the area. And the tank drove over it. We drove past this older farmer guy, and he just nodded with his head as well. It was—it's really a surreal experience being this close. I asked our guide, "How—how uh, how do these people live here? They—they must be really brave." And and then the reality struck back to me when he responded, "Oh, they're not living; they're just surviving, basically." But there's a support among them for the Ukrainian army, obviously. Yeah, for as much attention is given to people who flee their homes, a lot of people have nowhere to go. A lot of these rural communities are quite poor; they can't, you know afford to go to Poland or what have you, even with the amount of aid that people are given. A lot of people are also very stubborn. Um, a lot of people I've talked to in the past have basically said, this is my home. This is where I've been farming throughout my entire life. This is where my family is. So I'll send off my wife and kids or something, but I'm going to stay here and like guard the homestead, even though they're quite old they're not soldiers they don't have much room to you know fight off a russian battalion but that's the mindset ukrainians are very it's a very rural society in many ways and the land is very important the soil is very important and people don't want to give that up it reminds me of the chernobyl catastrophe yeah because the uh, the series the six episode tv series they actually got a lot of things really right yeah 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 one of the episodes where it was about evacuating people from there if you saw in these series how the old farmer lady said, you just shoot me together with my cow because I have nowhere to go and I won't leave. That's the attitude of a lot of people here as well, I think. It, it's something that if you can watch that episode, you'll probably understand how people feel about this war as well in a lot of places in those rural communities. Because the life still continues there. Building might be burnt out, like half of it might be burnt down. They will still run their kebab place somewhere on the other side. We, we mm-hmm. saw that, that yeah, happening yeah. as well. Yeah, and this thing with the farmers... Ukraine kind of needs them to do that as well. Like I said, it's a rural um, society. It's a very agriculturally based economy. Uh, Exporting agricultural goods is is a huge part of the GDP. And this area in the South particular is where it has like some of the richest soil in the world. Mikolaev is 
sometimes an export port, even though that's closed down at the moment, you can go into more detail about the, the, the export deals and all that. It's not so important right now, but like the work that these farmers are doing, it's not just a matter of them, their own personal, you know, emotional needs. It's like vital for the Ukrainian economy that they still do this. Yeah. And I think the top job that we can't forget is that on our first day before the trip, we mm-hmm. went and spoke with the Belarusians. Yes. Don't worry. I spoke with Nikolai. It's fine now. Mm-hmm. They gave us strict instructions on what we can publish and, and stuff. Okay. Okay. Everything. Yeah. But we spoke with Belarusians and currently, apparently there are rumors going around about Lukashenko kind of preparing to go to war, which is interesting since, well, that would be suicidus if you, if you recall how the Belarusian guy said Belarus entering the war with their troops is something that the West currently is just, because it popped up yesterday evening and everyone's super worried about that. I, I kind of want to calm people down there. I don't really think it's going to happen. Yeah, I've seen some of this around as well. Like, oh, the Belarusians are going to uh, storm Lviv and like attack Ukraine from the northerly direction. I don't think that is a possibility. I think Lukashenko realizes that his political rule is destable enough that adding an invasion on top of it would be the end of his regime. A lot of the soldiers would probably mutiny. Like, we were, we were talking to him kind of yeah. about this, yeah. Those guys said that in the Belarusian army, a lot of people are ready to just throw up their arms or turn them around. And in the 2020, apparently, now this is a quote, in 2020, they lacked the leadership, they lacked the military knowledge and the know-how how to organize everything. Right now, this Belarusian, is it a company or regiment? Oh, I forget the exact unit size. It's it's above battalion, yeah. basically. They have two brigades in them. Okay. Uh, it's one of those. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, know, I know them in Latvian and in Russian, but... So these guys said that they, uh, after the war in Ukraine is over, they'll probably go, go back home and um, settle things, clean out Minsk. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, from the Ukrainian perspective here, one thing I heard a lot from Ukrainians during the Belarusian protests is that they were kind of complaining that Belarusians were too passive. Um, That is a bit of a stereotype about Belarusians in general, is that they are very, they're very polite people. They don't like to make a ruckus about things. Oh, and hardworking too. Hardworking, but also, yeah, polite. And unlike, you know, the rowdy Ukrainians who are willing to, you know, storm government buildings and, and like beat up cops and all that. So there was a bit of a complaint that the Belarusians were not uh, either willing or able to to go against the Lukashenko regime in a violent means as well. I mean, that's a greater debate about, you know, the benefit of violent versus nonviolent protest, whatever. But basically what these guys were saying is that, well, at the time, there wasn't anyone who would organize that kind of like directly confrontational direct action type approach. Whereas now there are a bunch of trained Belarusian soldiers who who are able to do violence and have spoken more directly with uh, Ukrainian activists who are part of Maidan have been inspired by that. So they said basically that they would form the, the revolutionary vanguard of the Belarusian yeah, they <laughs> opposition. Would, they would take up the training. And the interesting thing is that they also were hoping that because currently they're focusing on liberating Ukraine. But after that, they hope to be able to take some of the vehicles back home too to help them. I don't know how this will go, but definitely onto Lukashenko Belarusians, and they are very motivated. And then the majority of the country as well, on some level, like maybe not like actively ready to go to revolution, but the majority of the country in the last election voted against Lukashenko. Yeah, d- definitely. And uh, I have to give this one out for everyone who is in the Baltics and in the West, because. 
these guys from I still can't pronounce the name of that guy though, but from this Belarusian military unit, mm-hmm. they stated that if you've left Belarus and you're feeling down and you feel like you've lost the battle, don't worry, this is the time to do a resurrection slash reincarnation thing and, and after after this is over in Ukraine, we'll go back home and then we'll settle this issue and throw the cockroach out. Direct quote here about the cockroach mm-hmm. because you have to have to know that. Fellow Eastern Border listeners who are U.S. military active duty, reservists, National Guard, retirees, honorably discharged vets or survivors, or friends or supporters of such, check out the Eastern Border info that follows. Not only did the CEO of U.S. military vet-founded HeroHomes.com introduce Kristaps to a Philly cheesesteak when he was in D.C., yummy! But most powerfully, HeroHomes.com is dedicated to finding and educating you all about the fact that you can use your technically unlimited no-money-down VA loan guarantee-backed home-buying power to become owner-occupying landlords in duplex, triplex or quadplex income-producing properties, with long-term or Airbnb-type rents helping to pay your mortgage. Furthermore, you can use your VA loans abroad, say to build a place for retirement, help relatives, help the place you were born or where your family came from. For example, the HeroHomes.com CEO's relatives came to the US from Lithuania in 1897. And best of all, help with community, economic, workforce, tourism and housing development, such as rebuilding Ukraine when the timing is right, which hopefully is soon. In regards to the eastern border countries, HeroHomes.com estimates that nearly one million of you were born or have families that came from there, and there are nearly 85,000 service members in the state National Guard units that are partnered with the eastern border countries, such as the California National Guard with its 24,000 service personnel that support the Ukraine. Right now, HeroHomes.com isn't selling anything, just starting the conversation, getting your thoughts and advice, organizing a cohort of us to help, coordinating with governments, and later, from a business perspective, giving us all do-good while doing well market power. Check them out, and if you are interested, sign up at the link in the show description. And as the HeroHomes.com CEO reminds us, happiness is mandatory. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
It's been a weird, weird experience, really. What for me the interesting part was that I've, I've been to Ukraine a couple of times now, and I thought I had gotten over the sheer kind of fear thing. But when the rockets did strike missiles, I, I know mm-hmm. that there's a military difference between them. Just in Latvian, they're all rockets. It still kind of makes you cringe in the stomach a bit when some explosion goes through, and you can like literally feel it in the building. Yeah, I've I've had a few of those before this, um, but not as close as it got, especially that last night that I'm pretty sure must have landed maybe at most two blocks away. All the car alarms are going that that freaked me out more than anything. Yeah, and, and the locals are used to it. I remember the governor telling us about how they've gotten used to this. I wanted to know mostly about how people were in the beginning of the war and how they're now, how they've adapted. And the governor told me that um, it's a security threat now because everyone's just ignoring air raid alarms. We even ignored air raid alarms in a few days. I mean, it's a security threat when your children just go out on the playground and play and they hear an air raid alarm. That's become so commonplace that they would just ignore it, basically. I mean, in Kiev, we still get plenty of alarms, but not many direct hits. Like, as I was setting up for this episode, I got, you know, the alarm on my phone saying air raid and then... The one that closed it off. So be- the air raid began at 10.18 in the morning and ended at 11.29. I did not think anything of it because that's just how it is in Kiev. Mikolaev, it's a bit of a different story safety-wise. Actually, as we were leaving, uh, the city center was hit by a cluster bomb and killed two people, I think it was, uh, and injured a dozen more. So this is a much more direct threat. It, it's something that happens multiple times a day, and sometimes it does kill people. Just because I was used to it in Kiev, I wasn't really paying much attention to oh. the alarms. Yeah. Well, you got to remember that Kiev has a lot of bomb shelters, too. Yes. In Mykolaiv, the situation is very different. We asked our hotel, do they have a bomb shelter? The answer is, well, not really, no. And then you ask the rabbi about the bomb shelter. Yeah, yeah. They also don't have a bomb shelter there. They do not. The uh, synagogue in Kiev was used as a shelter and humanitarian point during the siege. But that's also like a really old building that had like cellars and stuff like old school 19th century type brick cellars. So that was more secure. Whereas the one in McLive is a new construction, mostly. By the way, uh, listeners to Ukraine Without Hype, I have to say that Anthony remains unfazed of everything. He has this very calm and soothing voice all the time, which is interesting because in, in Latvia, if you speak in that matter, it, it, it kind of denotes that you're actually angry. <laughs> so <laughs> it was fun. Uh, but, but Anthony keeps his calm all the time. I, I think I was, I was the more uh, hysterical one who was actually more worried about stuff than he was. I, I mean, maybe. I don't know. I, that's, that's just, I'm not a very excitable person in most situations. I don't. No, you're, you're, you're great. And, and of course, if you ever visit Latvia, that you have a great tour on me. Yesterday, when we came back home, we, we figured we, we hadn't met in person before, before this trip. But now we've, we've rode on a tank together. We've been under shelling together. I mean, come on. Yeah, no, <laughs> weird. War. War is interesting sometimes. War is, war is a weird place because everyone goes kind of insane a bit, I think, slightly. Every soldier that we've met that actually went to the front lines, not the press officers, the press officer that took us on the tank the, the day that we went with the ride the tank, he often would make Russian jokes and then politely ask us uh, to not to translate them for foreigners. Those people, they're going to need some help after this, I think. That's going to be an issue because they're going on and well, while they're moving, it's fine. While they're fighting, it's fine. But uh, 
you can kind of see the tragedy in their eyes as well. And I think that's the real horror of the war because the war will not go anywhere when the bullets stop firing. Yeah. Like I wasn't in the military. You weren't in the military. Some of our listeners who were might understand this better than, than we did. But from a completely logical perspective, where we were, every soldier, every civilian there was in a constant state of mortal danger. Uh, at one point, we basically had to completely abandon the position we were in because the word got out that artillery fire was incoming. So it's it really is death around you all the time. But people can't live like that. They're, so you have to develop some kind of coping mechanism just to, to deal with the fact that to be in a constant state of severe alert can destroy your mental state. So you come in the jokes, like the lightheartedness, the very jovial kind of attitude that everyone had. It might not have been appropriate from a purely, you know, cost benefit kind of way, but it's what you have to do. Oh, I, I do have to mention here that uh, this will be interesting to all of you guys who listen to my show. A lot of you are military veterans, so the Ukrainian nickname for civilians is Chlopci, mm-hmm. which is a, a term that's used for the cabbage Cab- rolls. The cabbage rolls, yeah. I don't know why, because we're squishy inside and and we're wearing these blade carriers or something. I, I think that's something, now that I think about it, I think that's something to do with it, because a lot of those guys weren't even wearing armor. Some of them weren't. It, well, the tankers that went on, on the mission, they didn't have any armor. Yeah, there. so I think they figured they're encumbered. So incoming uh, journalists and outsiders coming in just, like, armored up to the gills. It, 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 I think that is part of the joke, is that they're covered. I, I guess so, but they were very nice. And mm-hmm. when, when you're in the war zone and in the front lines, you don't comment or complain about whatever the military says. You just don't. I let them be. I let them call me Chlopci uh, or Chlopiec. Uh, uh, it's fine. It's totally fine. Speaking of being calm, there's that one tanker who had his tank destroyed and like... Oh yeah, on the 6th of yeah, September. On the 6th of September. So very, very recent this happened. Uh, his tank gets destroyed. He escapes. He says he basically is running through some fields going from whatever depression or foxhole might exist, getting shot at the entire time. His clothes are on fire until he eventually reaches some other tank somewhere who gives him a ride out, but then they have to like cut his clothes off because it's like burned into his skin. But so as he's describing it, I feel like if you're just to type it out and like see it in written form, it would sound like a horror story, but the way he was saying it was so matter of fact and kind of like jokey, like we were saying, like he was, you know, drawing this out with his foot and he had like half smile on his face as he's describing it. Like, damn dude. Like a matter of fact, I mean, well, I, I lost this tank, commander also got blown up and everything, smiling and making jokes and all this stuff. And about those guys, they told us that the biggest issue that they had was was the communications. Apparently their comms only work 50 meters or so. I don't know how much that is in feet, but uh, about 50 meters. And after that, they have to get out of their tank and just hand wave signals there. Now, I, I posted this on Facebook, but people asked me strange questions that I have no answers to, such as what is the board, what is the onboard electricity voltage or something? I don't know that. I know those tanks are T-72s for the most part, and they lack comms in them. But um, but yeah, they managed to lose a commander this way, one of the tank commanders who was going out and doing the hand-wavy signals out of the kind of the shaft that you have to exit the tank from, and he was hit by, a, by an airburst round, kind of those... Yeah, that is one thing that's, I guess we can talk about this now, is 
like what can be donated and like how can you how can you help? Because it, it was something that came up in a lot of these discussions. And most of the time it came down to some version of specialized equipment. So in case of the tankers, it was the communications devices. In the case of the rescue people, they said they're missing a lot of like testing supplies to see if there was some kind of like chemical leak or something like that. Yeah, a chemical leak thing, which we were told normal civilians won't understand probably. And also equipment for removing mines, because a lot of those mines will be made from plastic, the so-called lipiochki, the small plastic mines that get thrown out and that they can't kill you, but they can blow your like uh, leg off below the ankle or something. They have also mines that are sensitive to metal itself. If you go there with a metal detector, the mine will blow up. So they, they need specialized equipment. Common equipment, everything else is nice. Except, of course, as you said, Anthony, send socks to to volunteers and everyone in the front. Yeah, they mentioned that they were mostly okay as far as like clothing, though, of course, winter is coming. So they'll need no socks, jackets, that like thick pants, that sort of thing. But they said that the situation as far as the basic stuff like that is stable or at least is and can be fixed pretty easily if the problem comes up, they felt. That seemed to be pretty consensus, but these really specialized things that are that we can't really explain because we don't know. That probably is why it's harder to fundraise for them, because like, how do you describe what specific equipment you need? Maybe, but like very, very specialized, um, higher tech type things that probably cost quite a bit to, I would imagine, are really what they're lacking. And so if anyone out there who organizes humanitarian aid or aid to soldiers, like, keep that in mind. Yeah, but the total mood here, yesterday as, as I arrived here, I was on another interview and the show host asked me there, are the Ukrainians ready to make a deal? And there's a lot of deal-making talks, especially with, with Putin's nuclear threats too. And from what I've seen, Ukrainians will not make any deals conceding any territory. Not anytime soon. Yeah, or at course. all. Like, Ukrainians understand that any any concession given to Russia will just be a step towards a future concession. Like, like there is talk about some kind of ceasefire at some point. And one, no one ever thought that the Russians would agree to it when they had the advantage. Now that Ukraine is on, on the offensive and taking back territory, you're starting to hear some murmurs of wanting a ceasefire. But that's just nonsense. The only way to bring peace is through victory, essentially. People looked the other way when Russia took Crimea and they looked away when Russia took about half of the Donbass region and people thought that maybe this is all that Russia wants. And no, Russia wants the entire thing. And any concession to that will be strategic, not a solution. And so these guys, they're also not surrendering. They're not giving up. Even if the Western aid ends at one point, they'll have a harder time. But I just don't see the men that we saw on the front lines. I don't see them giving up. Oh, absolutely not. Like, if there's some kind of cutback in aid, it will just mean that more Ukrainians will die protecting their homes. That's all it means. Yeah, that, that's about it. And it's their home and they're very proud of it. Ukrainians are very patriotic people, as I've seen in their everyday life. A lot of them try to be way more Western than the West, at least. Well, that's what I observed. They give out those ladies gloves and eat barbecues, for example. That's from Russia. That's from Russia, that's though. From but, Russia. but in a lot of ways, they... They embrace all the Western culture and everything. If you look at Ukraine and you haven't really seen this, if you have these stereotypes about Eastern European countries being somewhat backwards and, and maybe not as advanced, 
Now Ukraine has everything super high-tech. They're looking at the West and they're embracing everything. That's the cultural part. Stop thinking of Ukraine as some sort of backwater place where people are simple and easily fooled or something of those stereotypes. Ukraine, especially Kiev, is an ultra-modern city which is trying to push through everything that's new and hip and everything. They're, they're following the trends. That's another thing that I think needs to be reminded that these are not, these are not some people who are surprised of, of I don't know, Seeing a scooter on the streets. You drive scooters all the time. Oh, yeah, I drive scooters on the, all the time. Just, it just, it's the easy way to get around. But also, just to list off some things that I think are better in Ukraine than America, uh, the banking services here are probably 10 years more advanced than they are in the U.S., the things you can do with your bank accounts. All the documentation is much more advanced. Uh, all your government stuff can be stored electronically, and you don't have to carry your paper stuff to City Hall or whatever. Much better public transits. I saw a lot of people commenting on Twitter of uh, there is the announcement that the, the Kiev Metro runs every nine minutes at off-peak hours. People are like, what? And if, you, if that happened in Washington, D.C., it would be the greatest thing in the world. So there's things that Ukraine does better. So stop looking at this country as, like, like Chris Epps said, some kind of backwater. It's, it, it's quite advanced in, in some ways, in some specific ways, at least, more advanced than it is in the U.S. I oh, uh, definitely in the gas station food, which we had to eat for quite a lot in these yeah. days. Yeah, if you're, if you're familiar with a gas station wog in, in Ukraine, the, the wog dog is a staple of the Ukrainian travel experience. But yeah, well, I, th I think we kind of need to wrap this up. Articles are coming from both me and Anthony in various media, since it's, it's kind of hard to write things down and, and, and focus on, on everything and write things as you want them to be published. When you know that there's going to be a couple of more explosions coming in your way, and then there's stuff that you must do and all well, this. Yeah, the thing with journalism is that the field work is quite fun. The, the, the actual work of writing it all down gets a bit less fun. And sometimes when you're on the field, yeah, sitting down, and after that, we ate hearty meals after after each day because stress also makes you makes you hungry. But I hope that we did a good job. At least it was interesting and valuable that we did this. I think. Yeah, so I'll be publishing in New Voice of Ukraine some things and some various like just follow us on Twitter. We'll be sharing stuff. I'll be publishing in Latvian media in Tebanet and LSM, and then uh, the Belarusian soldier story is going go to go into foreign policy. Okay. But follow us on Twitter. Follow Anthony Moore on Twitter. He's he's lagging behind here a bit. I'm not a uh, micro internet celebrity. <laughs> please, please make him one. That is demanded of you, comrades. We're, we're joking here, but again, this is a uh, a lot of rough things happened, and now we can laugh about them. But turns into some sort of surreal painting territory now and then. And I hope that you guys will never have to experience anything like this near your own homes. To be honest. Yeah, it is um, quite brutal to see. We are only in Mykolaiv for a couple of days. Those people live there all the time. That is an everyday occurrence for them. I come back to Kiev, and Kiev is basically safe now, apart from... I say basically safe, apart from the random missile every now and then. But again, you adjust to your realities, I suppose. But coming back to Kiev, it, it just feels like a huge weight off my shoulders. And for people who live there, it's just always there. And once the war ends, they'll just have to process that. Well, we'll definitely come over and come back over here when the war ends. We have a journalist party in Odessa with a barbecue and everything. But I told the people who listen to this from Latvia, I will be having a nice little talking evening on the 7th of October in Zobens and Lemus pub. And if you're not from Latvia, you can still make it up until the 7th. 
and then I'm going to be sharing all the pictures and everything. But yeah, today, after this recording, we're off to Latvian Embassy to give our armor back that I had with me, and uh, then I'm off to the election. But so far, for me, and remember, happiness is mandatory. Slava Ukraini. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.